You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Well, good morning and uh, welcome this morning as the kids scurry to class. Let me extend a welcome to you. Let me uh, welcome you if you're online as well. It's great to uh, have you join us this morning. Thanks for being here. As we uh, are in the book of Judges, this is our second Sunday uh, to work through uh, what will be a number of months through this very interesting book, uh, this very non-boring book. Uh, none of the Bible is really boring, uh, but this book in particular has all kinds of things to, uh, to keep us engaged. And today I want to talk about this thing, this theme, chasing idols in a downward spiral, chasing idols in a downward or on a downward spiral. When we chase idols, we are always on a downward spiral. An idol for us is, is not in the Western world. Uh, it's not typically a statue uh, or an emblem or something physical that we bow down before. An idol for us uh, is the place we go when God is not enough. An idol is a God substitute that we look for to find our identity a place we go to find our purpose or our meaning. An idol is a place we go to to find relief instead of going to God. It's a place we go to to find security instead of trusting God. It could be money. It could be success. It could be possessions. It could be gaining the respect of others. Uh, It could be a place we go for relief like alcohol or food or pornography. It can be good things, good things that God gives us that we just make ultimate things, that we want too much, that we place our identity and our meaning and our security in. Things like family or our job or health and fitness or even as we've seen and talked about this last fall and see today our politics something good where we ultimately place ultimate hope becomes an idol and the reality is that no matter how great your life is on the outside because many idolaters look great especially in a place like frisco we look great No matter how successful and whole and wonderful your life looks like on the outside, if you have turned from Jesus in some area of life and you are trusting something else or someone else, you are on a downward spiral. You're not neutral. You're not headed upward. You're drifting. And this downward spiral, chasing idols on a downward spiral, this is what the whole book of Judges is about. It's the whole story, and it's laid out clearly in the chapter we're about to read. The chapter we're about to read serves as an overview for the whole book. It's going to show us how the book works and how this, there's this repeated pattern of chasing idols on a downward spiral, and it's going to be a warning to us to examine ourselves, our church, the body of Christ, but primarily ourselves to see if we are on that downward spiral. So this chapter is going to lay it all out for us. Commentator uh, 
Dale Ralph Davis said that, that this chapter that we're about to read, it's kind of like the visitor's center at a historical site. Have you ever been to a historical site and, you know, before you sort of tour the, the home or the park or whatever it is that you're seeing uh, this historical site, you have to go into the visitor's center and, you know, pay your money. And then they always offer like a five-minute film that's an overview of the park. Now, how many of you see that film before you go into the park? A few, okay, I see a hand in the back. That was enthusiastic. How many of you skip that and figure out the site on your own? You just go, okay, these will be the people that walk out of the sermon because this sermon is the film, okay? These are the people who go, I'm just not, get me to the judges. I don't need another intro. Well, this is the film that shows us on your left, you'll notice, and walks us through the historical site and the park. And then next week, We'll meet our first judge, and we'll be at the site itself examining it. But today we see the Visitor's Center film. And I wish it was a bright one, but here are the themes of the passage we are looking at today. The first section is on a failed handoff. The second section we'll camp on is on a downward spiral. And the third section is on a crash landing. Very bright and sunny thoughts, but it's just the reality of the text that God has given us. First of all, a failed handoff, chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. This is God's word. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had, been, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. And all that generation were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel." Now, this section right here is a flashback because last week when we read the first chapter, we found out that everything in Judges happens after Joshua's death. So Joshua leads the people into conquest, into take Canaan, and then he dies, and then we find out what happens afterwards. So this is a little bit of a flashback that gives us a description that Joshua and his generation were faithful because of two things we read here. Verse 6, they took possession of the land, which was God's provision. And verse 7, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. So Joshua and his contemporaries served the Lord faithfully did what God called them to do. But verse 10 tells us, after them, there arose another generation who did not know the Lord or the work that the Lord had done for Israel. And if we skip on down to the next verse, we'll see that it says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, the foreign gods. This has to be one of the most disheartening verses in all the Bible. There are not too many verses that are more discouraging than this one. 
Because what it's telling us is that after all God had accomplished for his people, making a promise to Abram that he would give him a land, Abraham, give him a land and make him a people. After that promise, after 400 years in slavery in Egypt, miraculously freeing the people from slavery, after the conquest led by Joshua where they made it into the land and took most of the land, and now we're just to the point of resettling the land, that after all that God had accomplished for his people, faith fully honoring his promises. And now we are at showtime. It's time for the generation that has arrived to build a society according to God's law that will be a flourishing society of justice and mercy and will declare to the nations. That's the whole point. Declare to the nations what God is like. At the moment of showtime, the people fail. After all that has gone on, they have, they have, this generation has forgotten the work of the Lord. They have completely lost their purpose and calling. And rather than stand out as an example to the nations, they become just like the nations. They become canonized. The people of God become just like their enemy. The people who are the enemies of God, the people that God is bringing just judgment upon, they become just like them. And it is tragic. This generation had their spot to play in redemptive history, and they quit. They quit. What happened? Well, the text doesn't really tell us exactly what happened. It just tells us, verse 10, that they didn't know, uh, they did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. The previous generation did, they didn't. It's important to, to know what the word know means when it's used in this way. When the word know, the, uh, to know, the verb to know is used in the Bible to speak of knowing God. It doesn't mean to know about God. Of course they knew about God. It doesn't mean that they, they knew uh, uh, something of what Yahweh had done, but it means to know in a personal, even an intimate sense. It means to know in a meaningful way. So, of course, they had heard about Yahweh. How do we know that? Well, because the previous generation was faithful. So the previous generation, they told the stories. They sang the songs. They performed the rituals of worship. Of course, they did all of those things, but, but the next generation didn't own it, that they didn't embrace Yahweh as their God. And so what goes wrong? Is it this generation uh, of parents that failed? Is it this generation, the next generation of kids that failed? Well, no blame is assigned in the text. It doesn't tell us, uh, you know, exactly what went on. I think it's safe to say that if an entire generation went off the rails, not some, but the entire generation, then certainly the parents missed something. Something was missed on their end, no doubt. And as parents who raise kids, we read something like this, and we want to cry out to God to help us to be faithful uh, and ultimately to ask God to work in the next generation, which is something we can tell and we can model, but we can never, uh, well, we can never force or coerce or guarantee the next generation trusts the Lord. And, and th- this is something that should be a concern for all of us, not just parents, 
but we all need to be praying for the next generation in our church. And this is a topic when a generation goes off the rails like this, this is a topic that, this is a delicate topic. I'm not going to speak really much about it because I don't think it's the primary purpose of the text, but it's a delicate topic because many parents can be confused and and when this happens, can, can uh, understandably grieve, not understand what's going on with the next generation, their own kids. Um, and if that's where you find yourself, please talk to someone and get help. Sometimes there's a shame associated with that where a parent feels like a failure and can't talk, won't talk about it, won't open up about it. But please don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Ask for help. Ask for prayer. Um, because God can meet us all in the midst of that. But I want to make a very clear point that ultimately here, every individual is responsible before the Lord. In other words, no one can say, this generation can't say, verse 11, we're doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord and serving the Baals because of the previous generation. Because of our parents, because of the church, whatever it is, no one can say that. God will judge them based on their idolatry, not based on what went on before them. Every one of us is responsible. And sometimes we want to make excuses for our turning from the Lord. We want to make excuses for our idolatry. We want to say, well, it was, this, it, was my, it was my parents, or we want to, this is if you're a young person in the room, please listen to what I'm saying. We can say, well, it's because my parents did this or didn't do that. We can say, it's because the church did this or didn't do that. Or a popular one now, it's because of the evangelical church in America and all of its failings and hypocrisies and politics and, you know, double talk, double speak. It's because of all that that I'm going a different, genera- different direction. Yeah, there are faults in your parents. There are faults in your church. There are faults in evangelicals broadly in the U.S. and in the world. And yet you will answer for you. None of us can point to someone else and say, because of them, I don't love Jesus who gave his life for me. Because of them, I'm serving false gods. No one can do that. So while we all want to be responsible as parents, as leaders, as church members, while we all want to be responsible for our message and our model, we want to ultimately look to the Lord and realize, I'm ultimately responsible for me, whether you're young or old. Because that's, we're going to see judgment. God is angry with this generation because they turned to the Baals. Not the previous one, but this one. So perhaps this is a wake-up call for us all. A failed handoff. Did the parents drop the baton? Did the kids drop the baton? We don't know how it all went on, but we know that the baton lied on the ground while the kids ran off to other idols. Number two is a downward spiral in verse 11 through 19. Now, this is the film proper at the Welcome Center. Uh, This is how judges will work. So if you get these verses, uh, you're going to be tired of seeing this pattern by the time we're done because this is going to happen over and over. Verse 11, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand 
uh, their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. And the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. This is the cycle that will be repeated throughout the book. And and commentator scholar Barry Webb uh, has produced a sort of graphic that we're using. I tweaked it a tad, but this is a graphic that tells the story of Israel. Some people say there's four stages. He goes for, uh, what does he have? Six stages here. But this is the cycle we just read. Israel serves the Lord. That was that first generation. Israel falls into sin and idolatry. Israel is oppressed, sometimes enslaved. Uh, Israel cries out to the Lord. God raises up a judge. Israel is delivered. They serve the Lord as long as that judge lived. Then Israel falls into sin and idolatry. It's going to happen through the course of chapters 3 through 16, uh, uh, either this exactly or a very close version of this, multiple times. And we see that Israel in Joshua's generation served, but then they fall into sin and idolatry. We just read verses 12 says they abandon the Lord. Verse 13 says they abandon the Lord. So they turn from the Lord. They turn to sin and idolatry. They forget the Lord, it says. They forget the God who brought them, verse 12, out of the land of Egypt, and they they serve other gods around them. Translation, they forgot the gospel. The gospel in the Old Testament, the great good news of God's deliverance is the exodus, the deliverance out of Egypt. In the New Testament, it's the death and resurrection of Jesus uh, on our behalf. So they forgot the good news. They grow comfortable and familiar with the people that they've allowed to stay in the land And they begin to slowly adopt the values, the worldview, the practices, the devotion of these people around them who do not know God. They grow familiar, comfortable uh, with the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, all these ites that live around them. And you know what? They ultimately say, these people aren't so bad, you know, maybe not as bad as God told us they were. Matter of fact, they've got some things that seem to work, and some of their ways of doing things aren't that bad. They aren't that harmful, Baal and Ashtaroth. And as a matter of fact, uh, there is some freedom in some of their ways. You know, they're not as sort of constricted as we are following Yahweh. They, they, well, in their worship, there is a little bit more freedom. There's certainly more sexual freedom. And they begin to adopt 
the worship is what it says. They abandoned the Lord, verse 13, and served the Baals and Ashtaroth. They served the Baals and Ashtaroth. What does this mean? What is Baal worship? I'm going to read a very short section here from a commentary by Dale Ralph Davis where he describes what Baal worship is. Uh, and uh, he describes the, the, the practices of the Canaanites. Uh, this is just some of it, but it'll give you a big idea of what was going on and in some ways why they participated and were drawn to this. He writes, Baal was the god of the storm and fertility. For the Canaanites, of course, fertility was the name of the game. Fertility of crops, fertility of livestock, fertility of family. Baal, nature god that he was, naturally had his female consort, Ashtoreth, or sometimes referred to as Ashtart. In Canaanite theology and agriculture, the fertility of the land depended upon the sexual relationship between Baal and his consort. The revival of nature was due to sexual intercourse between Baal and his partner, But the Canaanite faithful didn't simply sit back and say, let Baal do it. There was no let go and let Baal thinking among them. Hence, the Canaanites practiced sacred prostitution as a part of their worship. A Canaanite man, for instance, would go to a Baal shrine and have intercourse with one of the sacred prostitutes serving there. The man would fulfill Baal's role, and the woman would would, uh, fulfill Ashtaroth's role. The idea was that the copulating of the worshiper of the holy prostitute would encourage the divine couple, Mr. and Mrs. Baal, to do their thing, and thus rain, grain, wine, and oil would flow again. Through sacred prostitution, it was possible to assist and to encourage Baal who would make all things new. However, nothing would happen unless the fertility powers were properly worshipped. And he says parenthetically, here incidentally is the great divide between paganism and biblical faith. In paganism, the gods must be coerced rather than trusted. He goes on to imagine what it would be like for the Israelites in the land to be invited to participate uh, in what was going on uh, for the Israelites invited to participate. So pagan uh, pagan religion looked uh, to different deities for different needs. For fertility, uh, for your crops, your animals, or your family, you looked to Baal. And in an agrarian society, fertility was necessary for survival. So the Baals... They are prominent in Canaan. But God's people are to look to Yahweh alone. This is a totally different religion in the ancient Near East, the Hebrew religion. They look to God alone for everything. They have an exclusive relationship. God made an exclusive covenant with Israel. And so they are to look to God for everything. Their children, their crops, their animals, all of life is lived under his kingship and his rule. It's an exclusive relationship. So in other words, they don't look to Yahweh for religion, but when it comes to the practical matter of crops and putting food on the table, well, there we're going to look elsewhere. There's a more practical means to do that. 
No, they're to look to God for all of life because they have covenanted to serve him as God over all. And in the same way, we as Christians are called to live all of life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Lord over all of our lives. Do you see what they're doing? It's what we would avoid. We don't have Jesus as Lord over our religious life, our spiritual life. But when it comes to more practical matters, like putting food on the table, we may not go to, I trust we don't go to a a temple prostitute, but we may have other means of making it happen apart from the rulership and lordship of Jesus Christ. See, what we may do is have a religious life, a church life that may sort of touch our family life. But when we hit Monday morning and we go Monday to Friday, we adopt a separate mindset, a separate approach. When it comes to my financial life or my career life, rather than looking to God alone, I begin to look at the gods around me and see what's really working in the culture around me. What's really promoting wealth and security and success and career advancement? What are the sort of things those around me who who adopt different gods, different goals, different identity, different meaning, different calling than I do in the Lord Jesus Christ? What's working for them? Because I might just adopt some of that if it practically makes a difference. Idolatry is segregating our lives into sacred and uh, secular and adopting the mindset, values, and purpose of the culture. So let's take an issue like our careers. When When we take that out from under the lordship of Jesus Christ so that the very goal of our work shifts from, most broadly speaking, glorifying the Lord, honoring his purposes, fulfilling my calling to him, and shifts towards success alone driven by a secular model with secular gods, secular ambitions, secular goals, secular pathways. When I, when I segregate that out, then what I'm doing is I'm looking to the Lord in some areas, but when it comes to the practical matter of the crops, well, I'm embracing the values of the culture around me. And so we, we think that we're just a workaholic, trying to advance, but the reality is we've taken a good and godly thing like work and we make it an ultimate thing. That's idolatry. A good and godly gift, when we make that ultimate, when we make our security, our identity, how we feel about ourselves, uh, our goal, our ups and our downs, all tied to that and not God, then we're in an idolatrous place. So that we shift our purpose from glorifying Christ to success as the world defines. And what we end up doing is we end up cheating God and cheating others from our given callings. We cheat our marriage because we're about that, career advancement. We cheat our children as parents. We cheat our health by not stewarding ourselves and giving ourselves wholly over to a God. We cheat our rest the one in seven principle that God gives us in the scripture. We cheat our service to his church and our fellowship with his people. We, we cheat our volunteering, what we could do because we're chasing one thing above all others rather than submitting it all to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we, we actually think of that as something that's admirable. We, we think of workaholism as just sort of a weakness, but it's really admirable. And, 
and the Bible says in this passage, you're not a workaholic. The Bible uses a different word. It says you're a whore. That's not me being dramatic. That's the Bible. Verse 17. Yet they did not listen to their judges who were telling them to obey the Lord, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. Why does it use a word like prostitute? The reason it uses that word is because we have an exclusive relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We have an exclusive covenant where there is no room for other gods. And so when we worship other gods and we step out of this exclusive relationship with God, we have become an adulterer. We shift our trust, our identity, our purpose, our satisfaction, our security, whatever it is, our relief, whatever we're looking for, we shift that from God. We trust somewhere, someone else, something else. And that's an unfaithfulness that the Bible calls being a married prostitute. So you're married to God, in a sense. You're devoted to that exclusive relationship, and yet you are out, I am out, chasing other gods, which could be any number of things. And as we're chasing those, God says this in a very distinct, memorable way. You are whoring after other gods. You are a married prostitute. And the results of that are what you would expect. Those gods that you serve, those gods that I prostitute myself to, they use me. That's what the gods do. They use you. The cycle leads to Israel being oppressed. They think there's freedom in this sin. There's freedom. Wow, here's a religion where like part of the requirements are I go down to the temple and commit sexual immorality, which would appeal to a large number of people. And so that feels freeing, way more freeing than Yahweh. But you know what happens? Israel gets enslaved. They get oppressed. The, 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 the God says that he is angry and that he allows their enemies to plunder them is what the verse said that we read. That's always what happens with slaves, with, with, with sin. It leads to slavery. God, it says, is angered, verse 14. God is angered by their unrighteousness. Why is God angered? Because this is an exclusive relationship. And any spouse, any husband whose wife was a serial adulterer would be righteously angered. And if he wasn't angered, what would your question be? He sure doesn't love her. But God loves us with a jealous, committed love. And so when this happens, when the people of God prostitute themselves to various gods, in this case, we get the Baals and the Ashtaroth, when they do that, that God brings, uh, God brings a judgment of sorts to them so that they will turn back to him. Israel is oppressed. God loves them. And so he disciplines them. Now, we have a picture of that love that they couldn't even imagine. God gave his own son. He loves us so much that he gave his own son for us to draw us to himself. But this is where idolatry leads. It, It takes over our lives. It takes over our lives. And it says next that, Israel's oppressed. Israel cries out to the Lord. Verse 16, the Lord, uh, they were in distress. Verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who saved them. Now, in this passage, it's amazing. Verse 15 doesn't say they cried out for repentance or help. It says they were in distress. Many times in the book of Judges, they're going to cry out. Here, they don't even cry out. 
He just says they were in distress. Look over at verse 18. Verse 18 says, Whenever the Lord, um, for the Lord was moved by pity by their groaning because those who afflicted and oppressed them. They're not even repenting, and God is moved by compassion for them. There's grace all over this passage. They are serving other gods, and God chooses to deliver them. They are serving other gods, and God is moved by his compassion to rescue them. They are in distress, and God saves. God rescues his people to be faithful to his promise. So it says, verse 16, and the Lord raised up judges. It says plural here because this cycle is going to happen a bunch. We're going we're to work through 12 judges in our study that are raised up to rescue the people. Happens multiple times. And when they are delivered, verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies. Verse 19, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. So he raises up a judge, they are delivered, and the top of the cycle, Israel serves the Lord while the judge is alive. But after, verse 19, after the judge dies, what happens is they turn back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods. So this is how the cycle works. It's really, it's really a 3D. It's a spiral. It's a downward spiral because every time the wheel is turned, it goes down. It's not just a repeatable cycle, but when you get back up to Israel falls into sin and idolatry, they are worse than the generation before. So it's not a circle like this. It's a circle that 3D is going like this. It's a downward spiral with each generation who runs through the cycle gets farther from God. That's the way idolatry works. It goes farther and farther and farther from God. It's always a downward spiral. And it ends here with a crash landing. Verses uh, 20, chapter 2, verse 20, the anger of the Lord kindled against them. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive uh, out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. And then the last verses, now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generation of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. So he leaves the Canaanites in the land for two reasons. One is to test them because it will be a constant push for them to come back to God as they go through this cycle. So God allows things in our lives that will drive us to him, that will cause us to look to him, that will rid us of our self-sufficiency, that will open up our eyes and our blindness so that we come running to him and seek his help. And secondly, he wanted the next generations to know war. What does that mean? Well, he wanted them to receive the deliverance that the first generation had. He wanted them to see his power. So he actually leaves 
the Canaanites in there so that the, the next generation will get to the point in the cycle where God raises up a judge and delivers the people so that they will see the power of God for themselves. God does stuff so that that generation is tested to come to him so they can personally experience a version of the delivering power that happened back at the Exodus, that happened at the conquest with Joshua, that happened the generation before or the generation before that. That's what God is doing in them. And then the reason I say crash landing is because after he goes through the list of the nations, we read this, and this is heartbreaking. Verse 6, the last verse. Let's go to 5. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, uh, the the Perizzites, and the Jebusites. I got a few of those out of order there. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. This is where we end before we get to the first judge. They lived among them. They became comfortable and worshiped their gods. I mean, God will deliver them, but ultimately they're going to go back. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to give their sons and their daughters to intermarry with the Canaanites. And they're going to serve the Canaanites' gods. It's depressing, but it's eye-opening. Uh, I think two takeaways from this passage, and we're done. One is, I think from this passage, we learned something about idolatry in this cycle. That idolatry is devastating, but it's also degenerating. That, that, I, that, that, that it's not just a false god, but that it leads somewhere. And left unchecked, it leads to a degeneration in our lives. I mean, look at the degeneration. Look at, chapter, look at the first and last verse we read today. And look at the degeneration. Verse, chapter 2, verse 6. When Joshua dismissed the people of Israel, they each went to inheritance to take possession of it. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Look at the last verse we read. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives. Their own daughters they gave to their sons and they served their gods. It's just this cycle of degeneration. It's predictable. Here's the reality. We become enslaved to the things we trust in. You put your trust in money, you're a slave to money, and you'll live by fear and anxiety when you don't have it, and you'll live by self-sufficiency when you do, but you're enslaved to money. If that's, it's, it, whatever we look to and trust in as a God substitute, it becomes something that controls us more and more. What just becomes initially something to escape from, to escape from problems. It could be lust. Uh, it could be uh, pornography. It could be uh, some, some means of comfort or pleasure or something that we are, uh, you know, looking to to escape What ultimately we hope becomes escape oftentimes becomes something that dominates and controls our life. And what's so sad about this generation that we read about here, what is so sad is that not only is idolatry an affront to God, that's all we really need to say, the the loving God of the universe, we are turning our back and and prostituting ourselves, leaving our faithful God uh, behind. That's bad, but it's also sad that they totally miss their purpose. They were delivered to this spot to do something great, to watch God work through them amazingly, to to see the good news of God, the faithful God, Yahweh, begin to reach the nations through their example. What an opportunity. No one had had a higher calling than they. No one had had the opportunity in all of history post-fall. No one had had the opportunity they had. 
and, and, and yet they squander, they throw it away. Because idolatry is always a sorry substitute for God's glorious purpose in your life. It's a sorry substitute for real meaning. For, for giving your life to something that matters for, for them. Building a flourishing society on God's word that is a compelling example to the Canaanites rather than becoming like the Canaanites and offering no alternative whatsoever. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. That They're of the world. We are to be in the world, but we're not to have the world in us. In the world, but not to have the world in us. Dale Ralph Davis says that ships sink not because they are in the water, but because the water gets in them. And that's the problem here. They didn't sink because they're in Canaan. That's the gift of the Lord. They sink because Canaan gets in them. And we must be vigilant. So this is a stop sign. This is a stop sign to us to avoid idolatry. We all are given to idols. I love that John Calvin said, you know, that the heart is an idol factory. We, we create idols to substitute for God. And, and, and what are the idols in our lives? I mean, that's probably a whole other teaching and I'm out of time. But I would say this. I think to start with, we shouldn't assume that we're better than the environment in which we live. We shouldn't assume that, wow, that's really bad. Man, I can identify the Canaanites and I'm nothing like them. Now, I think we should look at the idols that surround us and start there and ask, and where am I affected in the same way? Money, success, possessions. This is the world we live in, in North Dallas. Career, security. We moved here because it's safe. Physical security. This is not bad. That's not a bad thing, but it's not an ultimate thing. Kids, kid idolatry, kid-centered homes. It's all about them. Safety, education. Education's a gift. It's just not ultimate. What are the things around us that we all moved here to get? And ask, where are those things in my heart? Are those things submitted to the Lord? And what happens if God takes some of those things away from me? How do I respond? Or how, hey, if those things aren't going the way I want them to go? Last thing I would say is that this passage teaches us that God is gracious the Bible tells the story of grace, forgiveness, redemption, and restoration. The passage we read today reads, they all served other gods. But the big story of the Bible ends, and there was a new heavens and a new earth where sin was no more. And there was no more crying, no more suffering, no more darkness. That God himself lights everything with his glorious eminence. So this little story that we read right now ends bad. But it points us to the ultimate story, which ends very differently. God is gracious, and we see it right here. They're not looking for God. They're just groaning. And God says, I'm going to raise up a judge and deliver them. Because they deserve it? No, because he's faithful. They deserve him to end the relationship. Say, you're whoring around? It's over. But he is faithful to his covenant, and he acts to bring them back to himself, to forgive them, to restore them, to continue his purposes. The story goes on. Jesus comes. It doesn't all end right here because God is gracious and God is faithful. At any point in this cycle, grace is available. At any point in this cycle, God is listening and welcoming the repentant, 
believer. At any point, uh, when we're oppressed, when we're crying out, when it's going well, we're still dependent upon the grace of God. We're dependent. If things are going well for you right now, you are dependent to say, Lord, I want to remain leaning upon you. Please help me. The good news for us is that God raises up a judge, a savior. These are saviors with little S's, but he raises up the ultimate savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us new life, who changes us, who gives us a new purpose, who gives us a new meaning, who gives us a clear conscience and a calling, gives us his word, his spirit, his people, has given us everything for fruitfulness, will never leave us or forsake us. We have, we have been permanently delivered from the dominion of gods, from the rule of idols. We have been, that has been broken over us, so we shouldn't rush back to God's substitutes. We've been freed from all of this. And whenever we're in the downward spiral, we just need to look up to Christ, who lifts us up, who has seated us with him in heavenly places, who restores us who renews our relationship with God, who renews our calling. There's not a person in the room, regardless of where you find your life overall in the cycle, that in a moment can't be restored to God. If you don't know God personally, you can receive new life by repenting, turning to him, believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you, and you receive new life in that moment for all eternity. And there's no Christian who's wandered, who's uh, falling into sin and idolatry, who's living under life-dominating sins that can't come back to him. The prodigal welcomed home. That's That's the theme story of the New Testament. So today, wherever we find ourselves, let's turn from God's substitutes. Let's turn to the living God and freshly receive his grace. Let's pray with me. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.